Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. I'm really excited to continue our sermon series um, through the, the later book of Genesis on the life of Joseph. Our sermon series is called Hidden Grace. And specifically today, before we begin, I just want to give um, Vodi Bakum a shout out. I listened to a sermon from Vodi Bakum. Um, that he presented at a conference that really changed my perspective on Joseph and actually changed my perspective on how to read the Old Testament. He's a brilliant man, and a lot of these ideas, the core concepts today that we're talking about, um, I gleaned from his sermon. And actually, I requested to Derek, who has designed and preached the majority of the sermon series, I actually asked if I could preach this text specifically for this reason, because I, I would really love to give my own spin and interpretation on Devotee's interpretation of how we view Christ in the Old Testament. Now, um, I want to begin by just a statement that's going to guide our time together. This is how we read the Bible. This is what we believe as a church. Uh, the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, but rather one story that points to Jesus at its center as the rescuer of all of God's children. And that's the primary theme, that's primary way of how we view the scriptures as Jesus at the center of this rescue story. So in order for a story to have rescue, we need to have need for rescuing, right? So we look at the beginning of the Bible, we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that everything that God made was good. There was no brokenness, there was incredible joy. Adam and Eve were together with God. They were together with each other. They were one with themselves and one with creation. But unfortunately, we need a rescue because there was brokenness. We actually are far away from home, which I had talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, God's instruction to Adam and Eve was not to eat of this one tree. There was just one rule, one choice that they had. And what we see in the first pages of the Bible is that an evil serpent came into the garden and tempted Eve with Adam right beside her, a silent participant. We read these words in Genesis 3.6. So when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate. So we find that everything wrong with the entire world is traced to this simple act of disobedience from Adam and his failure to protect his wife and his passivity, just going along with it, just letting her be tempted without speaking up. And we live in this reverberating echo of the fall to this day. And so we see that there is a narrative of disconnection, of going away from home, away from where we were originally created to be. And we we see this need for a rescue. And the coming of a rescuer is promised probably just minutes or hours after Adam and Eve fell. We see this in Genesis 3.15. And, and what we're about ready to look at here is something called the proto- Evangelion, um, proto-evangelion, proto in Latin meaning first, evangelion meaning good news. This is the first good news that we are presented with, and it's actually in the literal minutes or hours after Adam and Eve fell and after everything became a mess. And these are some of the most beautiful words in the entirety of the Old Testament when we understand them. So 
Um, God walks in the Garden of Eden, and he finds Adam and Eve hiding from him. And he hears what had happened, although he already knew. And he's actually beginning to speak a loving word to Adam and Eve. He's giving them clear expectations on what life is going to be like, pronouncing how the world is now cursed. But first, before he does that, he speaks to the serpent, who we actually see is Satan incarnate. We actually see this in Revelation. In Revelation, it says, And that great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called devil and Satan. So, It's the four of them in the Garden of Eden. It's God, it's the devil, and it's Adam and Eve. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just the interaction between those four people? But God speaks first to Satan and the evil serpent, and his speech to Satan, in his speech to Satan is rooted a promise of a rescue, the Proto-Evangelion, the first good news. He says these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. You're like, wait a minute, hold on. Talking about heads and heels and bruisings. What in the world about this is good news? Well, let me explain the promise of a rescuer. The first thing he says to the serpent is, I'll put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. Now, wait a second. This is very interesting. Because remember, it was Adam's responsibility to protect Eve, but God focuses here on the relationship between the serpent and the woman. And it's very, very interesting. It means that there's something special both about Eve and women in general. See, Adam was supposed to protect Eve and didn't, but there will now be a special conflict between the woman and the serpent now. So this this next phrase begins to explain their relationship even further. It says, between your offspring and her offspring. So he's talking to the serpent again. Remember, he's talking to the serpent. You're going to have offspring, and she's going to have offspring, and there's going to be hostility between you two. So that offspring is um, what we see later on is referred to as seed, right? This idea of of prodigy, of race, offspring, people coming forth, right? And what we see is that Satan will have seed. He will have offspring. This is evil propagating in the world. This is torment. This is temptation. And it will propagate. It will breed. And it will multiply. But he says the woman will also have seed. She will have offspring. And then you've got to again think, wait, do women have seed? No. Men have seed. Men have offspring. Right And every other genealogy, and the ge- most genealogies in the Bible are predominated by men. Men are the ones that carry the seed. Men typically carry the promise. Men typically carry the legacy. But God is saying something special here, that there will come from the offspring or the seed of a woman, not a man. My friends, this is a promise. This is a foretaste. This is a prophecy of a virgin birth. That one day a woman will have a unique, a special offspring, the offspring of a woman, not the offspring of a man. And then he continues, it says, and he shall bruise your head. So the offspring that God is referring to is a singular person. He, not they, but he, this one offspring, there'll be conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of this serpent or the devil. And this offspring will be one singular man. And this man can, this this word bruise here can mean to crush or to strike at, right? So how do you kill a serpent? You crush its head, right? You, you sever the head, you destroy the head, you kill the serpent. And so to crush the head was to deliver a fatal blow. 
to the serpent. So what he says is this offspring of the woman will bruise or crush your head. And then his final phrase is, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, remember, thinking about who's listening to this, this is written uh, more than likely by Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And he's writing it to ancient Near Eastern Jewish people who've been walking around in the desert, okay? So they're, they're in the desert. Moses is writing this, and they have these thin leather sandals in the desert, in the sand as they're working, as they're shepherds, as all these things. So their heels were hard. There was no ancient Near Eastern mani-pedis out there, okay? So the, 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 a bite to the heel was a non-lethal blow. So let's put this all together. A special man, not born from the seed of a man, but born from the seed of a woman, will deliver a fatal blow to the offspring of evil and in the process deliver a non-lethal, receive a non-lethal blow. Now, does this sound familiar to you? My friends, this is what the Bible is all about. God promises a rescue, and he promises a rescuer. This is the proto-evangelion, the first good news. Now, what happens next? We see that in Genesis 4, we see the first murder, Cain, who is the, supposed to be the promised seed of Cain and Abel. We see that Cain becomes jealous of Abel and kills him, and then Cain is cursed. So you can't get promised seed from a curse. So Abel's dead, Cain is cursed. This leaves the third son of Adam and Eve, Seth. All right, and from Seth, there comes a man named Terah. And Terah has a son named Abram, whose name later becomes Abraham. And God makes a promise with Abraham. He renews the same promise. He says, From you will be birthed a nation, and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He gives Abraham a special commission for his life and his family, of which the promised seed will come. Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac, Miraculously, the wife, uh, uh, the, the son of his old age, his wife was barren, and yet God miraculously allows his wife to get pregnant with Isaac. And then Isaac gives birth to Jacob, Jacob, who is the younger of two sons, we think that the the promise is going to go through the older son, but it actually goes through the younger son, the one who deceived his father, that is Jacob. And then Jacob gives birth to Joseph. And that is where we come to our story today. And so typically, the story of Joseph that you hear, if, if you did not grow up in a church context, this is the story that most people heard in Sunday school. This is kind of the principles behind the story, right? The, the principle behind the story is, That um, Joseph had dreams. He was misunderstood by his family and sold into slavery. And then the teacher would typically ask, are you misunderstood? And people are like, yeah, I I sometimes get misunderstood. And and then we see that Joseph suffered unjustly. Do you sometimes have bad things happen to you? Yeah, I sometimes have bad things happen to me. And then the principle, the moral is if you just have enough faith, then you'll get the payoff. God will bless you and it will all work out in the end just like Joseph. And the text that we're looking at today is Joseph's payoff, where Pharaoh honors him and gives him a seat of prominence and position in Egypt. And the whole world is saved because of Joseph's prophecy being fulfilled. But unfortunately, how this is typically taught is that it's centered on Joseph. It's centered on the payoff of wealth and prosperity. And so the idea is just hold on, have faith in God, and you will eventually be blessed. But remember, This story is not about Joseph. This story is about the same 
thing as every other story in the entire Bible. It's a story of rescue and a rescuer. And so today I want us to reframe the story around the biblical narrative of a rescuer. So we've been, Joseph's been in the pit, he's been in Potiphar's house, he's been in prison, now he's in the palace. So we're going to talk about three points today. Joseph's ascent to Egyptian power, the affliction of Joseph in Egypt, and the true rescuer of God's people. First off, Joseph ascent to Egyptian power. And by, by kind of way of a subtext, we're looking at the favor of Joseph, starting in Genesis 41, verse 37. So we see here that um, <clears throat> Genesis 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? In whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed them in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath paneah and he gave him the marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Let me just give a few explanations here, and maybe some common misconceptions. First off, um, he he asked this question: Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? This is not a profession of faith. He did not convert to the Jewish God, the one true God. Pharaoh still thinks he is a god, but what he recognizes is that Joseph has a different god than himself and a different god than the other gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And what he wanted is to co-opt that power for himself. He says, hey, he's got a spirit that's different than me and different than the other gods that are being worshipped here. How can I use this and use the spirit to help me save my people and save my country and save my own skin? So this is not a profession of faith. This is literally saying, hey, um, I see that he's got a different spirit and I want to use that spirit. How can I use that spirit? And then we see his favor on Joseph in four main ways. First, he gets an Egyptian name. It was very common in different cultures to assimilate outsiders into your culture by renaming them. You're essentially re-giving them a new identity. This happens here. This actually happens in Israel. This actually happens with Daniel later on during the exile of, of, of um, Israel. When they're taken into Babylon, they're given Babylonian names. So what this really means is you are re-identified now as an Egyptian. So he gets an Egyptian name. He gets a beautiful Egyptian wife. 
She's the daughter of a priest of own. This would have been the wife of kings or princes. This was someone who was being saved to being offered as a wife of someone prominent and important to, to create ties between nations. Okay, so this was, well, I remember there was three main gods. There was the Pharaoh and kind of the, the, there's two other gods. And one of those two other gods was own. Okay, so this is the, the chief kind of priest, his daughter was a very high position. She probably never worked a day in her life. She was probably treated lavishly because this would have been a very kingly thing to offer um, to have Joseph be married to her. Um, This was one of the most powerful gods in Egypt, and he's marrying the priest's daughter. So he gets a beautiful Egyptian wife. Then he gets the ultimate power over all of Egypt. He's second only to Pharaoh himself. He's blinged out with a gold chain right? Like he literally puts this weighted gold chain on him to signify his power over Egypt and actually the power of wealth too. This is unheard of political power. And what I think Pharaoh saw was like he believed Joseph's interpretation of his dreams. And he thought, man, I've got a guy here that can take care of my problems. I'm just going to let him handle it. And I'm going to coast into retirement. I'm going to build my pyramid. I'm going to prep for the afterlife. And, and actually, we find that most pharaohs would prepare for 20, 30 years for their afterlife and prepare these huge sarcophagi and, and these huge pyramids and, in order for them, they believed that they would live in these things in the afterlife. And so uh, what I think Pharaoh did was he saw Joseph as a way to just kind of go into early retirement. Let me give this young buck total control. And we even see later that all the nations come and bow down before Joseph, not before Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh just kind of wanted to be out and kind of doing his own thing. So he gives Joseph the power, the ultimate power over all of Egypt, second only to himself. And then finally, he gets the ultimate position. He's second in command of the largest empire in the known world. And so what else could that second chariot be but the Rolls Royce following behind the Bentley the Pharaoh's sitting in. He's right behind the Pharaoh. He's got the gold chain. He's got the Rolls Royce. People are bowing down to him. And remember, this is also a spiritual element too. The ultimate position next to Pharaoh, uh, people worshiped Pharaoh as a god. He thought himself as a god. And so to have the favor of a god, right, meant that you were had spiritual power over Egypt as well. So we see the favor of Pharaoh as part of Joseph's ascent to Egyptian power. But what solidified it was the success of Joseph's plan. And so we see in the text that Joseph's plan actually does come to fruition. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food in those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities, and he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. This is one of the largest feats in the known world at the time, in human history up to this point, to store so much grain that he could, it couldn't even be numbered. This was a fifth of all the grain of the largest empire in the world for seven straight years, stored and organized by Joseph himself. This was the proof that he was right. And then we continue in verse 53 of chapter 41. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph has said, there was famine in all lands. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. And then when all the land of Egypt was vanished and the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Remember, he's checked out. He's in retirement, man. 
So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe over all the earth. This is overwhelming in its significance. This is a poor shepherd boy, right? The, the, the youngest son, the second youngest son, who was favored by his father but despised, sold into slavery, was in jail. Now he's got nations coming to Egypt to bow down before Joseph to buy grain from him, to grovel at him. Can you imagine the wealth that Joseph amassed for both himself and for Pharaoh and for Egypt during this time? This ascent to Egyptian power. He had the favor of Pharaoh and the success of his plan. And so we would rightfully think that this is the narrative of a hero, but what we're going to find is that Joseph is still afflicted in Egypt. So this is the narrative of a hero, isn't it? He suffered at the hands of his brothers and was sold into slavery. We find that he once was a jerk, but then he matured, right? That he was faithful in Potiphar's house. He was obedient during the temptation and the false accusations. He held a high moral ground and said, how could I sin against God? He endured the hopelessness of prison. He was forgotten about for another two years. He accurately interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. He was the triumphant hero in the exact moment that he was needed. He exercised his supernatural God-given gift, and then he was raised and elevated to the seat of power and saves the known world from famine, curtains closed, story done, rags to riches story complete. You know, I couldn't help but think about the Count of Monte Cristo when I was reading these notes and going over them. You know, this guy who was falsely accused, thrown in prison, develops all these incredible skills of business and fighting in prison, and then he comes out to fight the person that put him in prison and ultimately win the day and win the girl at the end. This fits our rags to riches story perfectly. However, I also think we want to see Joseph's payoff. And the payoff for the hero in this story is he gets the ultimate Egyptian name. He gets a beautiful Egyptian wife, gets the ultimate power over all of Egypt, and he gets the ultimate position, second in command of the largest empire in the world. Now, it sounds great, right? But is this story about Joseph? Are we informed as we look at this by our previous statement that said the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, but rather one story that points to Jesus at its center as the rescuer of all of God's children? My my friends, the Bible is all about the promised seed, the promised lineage come to rescue the world from sin. But here, is it all about Joseph's payoff? Is chapter 41 about Joseph's get what's his after enduring uh, slavery and false accusations? What if I told you that every part of the story is still an affliction for Joseph, that he might be even in more danger than he was when he was in the jail, this son of Jacob and the bearer of the divine blessing of God. When we pull back and we put this into the context of the broader story of the lineage and the promised seed and the commission to Abraham and the commission to Jacob's family, we see that this is putting Joseph in dire straits. First, we see that the Egyptian name seeks to destroy Joseph's identity. Zaphonath Paneah says, the God speaks and he lives, or the God speaks life, right? And so they kind of named him this flippant name, his God speaks life, right? What they're doing is they're trying to strip away Joseph's Hebrewness 
and bring him into Egyptian culture, right? Where his God is just one of many gods and his God just so happened to be the one that spoke life, right? So trying to rebirth Joseph into Egyptian culture, his name, the Egyptian name seeks to destroy his identity. Next, we see the Egyptian wife seeks to destroy his lineage. Remember, she's the priestess. She's the son of a priest. She's a priestess of a false God. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites are warned from marrying foreigners because of the intrusion of false gods into their life. This is a pattern in the Old Testament. Every time the Israelites marry outside of the nation of Israel, there's false gods getting interjected. But now he's given a woman who's the daughter of the priest of a false god, one of the top false gods of the most powerful nation in the entire known world. They're seeking to marry him into Egyptian culture and religion, right? So the name seeks to destroy his identity by rebirthing him into Egyptian culture. The wife seeks to destroy his lineage by by marrying him into Egyptian culture and religion. Then the Egyptian power seeks to destroy his commission. Remember Genesis 12, God comes down to speak to Abram. And he gives Abraham a blessing, a commission. He says, I'm going to bless you so that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a heavenly commission. And what they're trying to do is trading the Genesis 12 heavenly commission that a nation, the nation of Israel would be formed that would bless the world into an earthly commission to root himself in Egyptian power, to bless himself with Egyptian wealth, instead of the global commission to bless the world in submission to the one true God. They're trying to conjoin Joseph to Egypt's goals, right? When Egypt gets rich, Joseph gets rich. So let's bring him in. Let's co-opt his God, right? Just make him like one of the other gods. Destroy his identity. Destroy his lineage. And then compel him and tempt him with the power that can destroy his heavenly commission to give him an earthly one. And then finally, the Egyptian position seeks to destroy his allegiance. He's second in command to Pharaoh. But he, listen to this, he's still serving a foreign king who thinks that he's a god. His very existence is blasphemy to the one true God. And this, this Pharaoh thinks he deserves worship. And what he's doing is using Joseph's gifts, his spiritual gifts, like Derek talked about last week, to promote his own kingdom. So he's second in command to an evil king instead of forming a new family of God who will bless the world. He's in servitude to Egypt's false god. So the name destroys his identity. The wife destroys the lineage. The power seeks to destroy his commission. And the position seeks to destroy his allegiance. And my friends, is this what we hope for our children? Is this the payoff we desire? I want you to think or contextualize this with your own children who hear this story as it's traditionally been told. So I want you to think about a young man, like many young men, who grew up in the church. And he goes to college and he gets compelled by wealth and success, and he's captivated by the world. He loses his spiritual identity. He gives himself to a corporation that promises him money. He marries an unbeliever. He neglects his home. He neglects his family, and he thinks of them too base. He's too distracted with his life and looking at success and money, and he serves himself in the God of money. So we would cry about that in our children, but we celebrate it in the story of Joseph. Why are we so allured by Joseph's success here? Why? Because, my friends, I think this is often what we want. We want the material payoff and the nice cherry on top. 
So that's what we're looking at. When we pull back in the broader narrative of the Bible, we see that Joseph is still being afflicted in service to a foreign god, his identity being destroyed, that the temptation to destroy his identity, the temptation to destroy his lineage and co-opt him and marry him into Egyptian culture to destroy his uniqueness, the, the temptation of Egyptian power and wealth, and the temptation of the position right next to Pharaoh to serve Pharaoh instead of serving the one true God. But what does Joseph think about this? We have to understand, like, what is, is, does Joseph agree? Does Joseph see it in this way? My friends, Joseph sees his affliction if we're paying attention. Look with me here. In just three verses, between the years of plenty and the years of famine, it tells us what Joseph actually thinks about his rise to prominence in Egypt. And he does not see it as the payoff at all. He actually sees it as his affliction. Look with me at verses 50 to 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the names of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Well, the first thing we need to note here is that Joseph gives them Hebrew names. He is vehemently saying, I do not consider myself an Egyptian. I am still a Hebrew. He does not give them Egyptian names, even though he is called by an Egyptian name. And they have an Egyptian mother. He gives them Hebrew names. Very important. And the two names is Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh, it's a difficult thing to translate. It literally means causing me to forget. My trouble in Egypt. He forget all my hardship. And, and he didn't forget his father's house. That's not exactly the right translation. He didn't forget his father's house. He forgot the hardship that came from his father's house. And in Vodi Bakum's sermon, as he's explaining it, I really like how he summarized that this name literally means I let that stuff go. That's what that means. So it's causing to forget the trouble that came from his father's house and the trouble in Egypt. And then Ephraim says double fruit. That's what it means. God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. That means double fruit in the land of my affliction. Remember, he's the second son, right? So double fruit, fruit meaning son is the second one, double fruit in the land of my affliction. Did you get it? He sees Egypt still as the land of his affliction. He still sees himself being afflicted. He's away from the land of promise. He's sold into a nation that worships its king as a god. He serves this king, and he's being assimilated into its culture. His family, what we see in the coming chapters, is going to come live there, further removed from the land of promise. And we see the ominous words on the first few pages of Exodus. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, foreshadowing 400 years of slavery of his descendants. Now, my friends. We get to our final point. Joseph sees himself as being afflicted. He refers to himself, this is the land of my affliction. So this is not the payoff moment. So the true rescuer of God's people. My friends, why is Joseph's story in the Bible? It's not a payoff. If it's not about the payoff, why do we have this? What is it about? Let me explain. So we follow the seed of Adam and Eve. See, the key is in the seed. The key is in the lineage. That's how we should see this story. You see, Adam and Eve have two offspring, 
Cain and Abel. And the seed of the serpent is propagating evil throughout the world. In the very next chapter, Genesis 4, we see that Bible that in the Bible that evil fills Cain and he kills his brother out of jealousy. So Cain's then cursed. He can't get a promised seed from a cursed seed. So Abel's dead, Cain is cursed. We have to go to the third son, Seth. And the promise I said that says that that is when men began to call on the name of the Lord. So there's a little bit of hope. But then we also see very quickly it goes downhill. Evil overcomes the world. God sends a worldwide flood but saves the offspring of Seth and the man named Noah. God preserves the seed. He miraculously preserves humanity in Noah. Noah has children. And in Genesis chapter 11, we get to Terah from the direct lineage of Seth. Now remember, this was supposed to preserve the knowledge of God of the world. But we get to Terah, and we find that Terah is named after the moon god, Terah. And he lives in Hebron, which is the capital of lunar worship for the entire world. They had completely forgotten who the one true God is. But Terah had a child named Abram. And Abram had a wife who was barren. And her name was Sarah. And God comes down from heaven and he meets with Abram in Genesis 12. And one of those miraculous and beautiful um, interactions between God and humanity in the entirety of the Bible. And God speaks to Abram in Genesis 12 and he gives him a promise of what? Seed, lineage. He gives him a promise. And God says his offspring will bless the entire world and that the entire world will be blessed. Global blessing, global salvation. And he will create a new people of God, and he changes his name to Abraham, father of many nations. But Abraham was too old for seed. His wife was barren. And for years, Abraham waited. God appears to him again to promise that his seed would outnumber the stars. And Abraham waited. But finally, Sarah got impatient and gave Abraham her handmaiden and said, well, just have our baby through her. So Abraham disobeys God, has a child named Ishmael, but we see that the promise was not just for the first seed, but the promise was the promised seed, right? So then God miraculously intervenes and gives Sarah a child in her old age, rejecting Ishmael as the promised seed and saying, no, we will have another promised seed through Sarah, through your wife. And that was Isaac. And Isaac has two children, Esau and Jacob. And we think the promise is going to pass through to Esau, the oldest. But no, it's not a story about lineage, but rather God's sovereign election. And the younger brother, Jacob, deceives his father, and he receives the blessing from his father of a promised seed. God chooses the least likely brother who even deceives his father to carry on the promised seed. Now, Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them was Joseph. But another one was named Judah. We actually get introduced to Judah a couple of chapters prior to this. He was the son, not of the woman Jacob loved and desired and wanted, but he's the son of a woman that Jacob did not even want and was tricked into marrying. And on an excursion to Egypt to get food in the middle of a famine, Judah's younger brother is at risk of being capped in Egypt. His younger brother, Benjamin, it was a ploy from Joseph to try to get more information out of his siblings. But Judah stands up to Joseph and offers himself as a representative substitute to protect his younger brother, Benjamin, in Egypt. Now, one of Judah's great, great, great grandsons was a young boy named David. And this this boy, David, was born in the nation of Israel. And David is the youngest of all of his brothers who are all at war. 
And young David goes to bring them food on the front lines, and he hears a giant named Goliath mocking his nation. And the giant challenges Israel, the whole nation, and says, send a man to fight with me, and if he wins, our people will serve you, and if, and if we win, you must serve us. Everyone's a coward, including David's siblings. But David steps up. He steps up as the representative substitute for God's people who wins a victory on behalf of all of God's people, and they all enjoy the spoils of his victory. And he's elevated to a throne, and God makes a promise to David that his kingdom will be forever. So from Seth to Noah to Abram to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to David, God has been progressively revealing his plan beautifully and carefully crafted from eternity past to preserve this special lineage, to preserve the promise of a rescue and a rescuer preserved from Eve to Mary, to have a more special seed than Isaac born to a special woman, a more special woman than Sarah, a son named Jesus born of a virgin named Mary. And this promised seed named Jesus has a more prominent place in history than Jacob, not chosen because of deceit, but because and by his perfection as both God and man. And the promised seed named Jesus is better than Joseph, who doesn't just save Egypt from famine, but saves the world from eternal damnation. This promised seed named Jesus is better than Judah, who offers himself in place not just of a family member, but of all humanity. And this promised seed named Jesus steps up as the representative substitute of all of God's people and wins the ultimate victory over death, sin, hell, and the grave and delivers a crushing blow to Satan himself on the cross. And this promised seed named Jesus resurrects from the dead and creates a new people of God called the church who enjoy the spoils of his victory. And Jesus is elevated to an eternal throne for all time and his kingdom is now breaking into the world. My friends, this is why we have chapter 41 in Genesis and the story of Joseph. It screams that God has a plan since the opening pages of the story to come down, to heal us, to save us, to rescue us, and to make us his people. And these are the lines of the promised seed who will crush the head of the serpent. My friends, the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, but rather one story that points to Jesus at its center, the rescuer of all of God's children. Jesus is the one who rescues us, standing as a substitute on behalf of God's people. Jesus is the one who lays down his life. Jesus is the one who accepts the wrath of God poured out on him to win victory on behalf of God's people so that all found in him might be rescued. And the story of Joseph. And this story right here is yet another stepping stone on the way to our rescuer, King Jesus. So my friends, the entire world is in the midst of a transformation, away from the pain and evil of this world and into a new way of living called the kingdom of God. And this rescuing story continues, and God's rescued people can play a part in spreading his message of hope as we live in exile believing that one day Jesus will come again and set the world right once and for all. So our story must be rooted and informed in God's story to truly understand the world around us in human history. And it's not about material wealth. It's not about success or overcoming your personal demons. It's about joining God on his global vision for the world and experiencing his rescue and then sharing his rescue with others. It is not about your personal overcoming. It's about God's power overcoming within your weakness. And you are a part of God's special plan. All you have to do is believe. You cannot save yourself. The Bible says to repent and believe the gospel. You cannot save yourself. 
You give your entire life to King Jesus. You accept the victory that he has won for you, and thus you will live. This is what makes you a Christian. If you trust this message I just shared with you, it's true for you. And you acknowledge that you need the rescuing work of Jesus. We keep believing this every single day. If you're a follower of Jesus, reject the lie that this is about this life is about finding yourself. Reject the lie that you need to be independent from community. Rather, you need to be humble and dependent on Jesus. My friends, the rescuer has come, is coming, and will come. He is bringing his people back to himself and then sending them out into the world to invite others into this healing, goodness, restoration, and rest. You have a mission to share this. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, but rather it is one story that points to Jesus at its center as the rescuer of all of God's children. So invite others into the story filled with the rescuing work of Jesus, who is the promised seed, the promised rescuer, sent from heaven by God for you in your spiritual famine so that you can feast at God's table again. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.